This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast that you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to the show. This is your boy Dak from the 410 Gaming Podcast, and you're currently listening to the California Dreaming Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I am really excited to bring you the first of a different kind of California Dreaming, the Vacation Series. If you follow me on social media, last month I asked you guys to comment on my post with your city, state, province, or country, and I would put all of the answers into a drawing and choose one to cover a crime from that particular area. Well, my daughter did the drawing for me and the winner was Facebook commenter David from Florida. The land of flowers where the sawgrass meets the sky. So I spent a great deal of time sorting through all of the wackiness that is the state of Florida and the wealth of crimes it has to offer. I really tried to come up with a story that not only resonated with me, but hopefully possibly one that hasn't been covered too extensively by other great podcasts. I've come to find that not only does Florida have some stories that are stranger than fiction, there are so many of them as well. And there are quite a number of excellent podcast hosts that are based in Florida and have done an amazing job covering some of the most sensational stories out of the Sunshine State. I'm still torn between two crimes. One of them is a story my husband wanted me to tell, and the other one is one that I wanted to tell. So what I've decided to do is tell my story for you here today, and I will tell his as a bonus Patreon episode. That way he won't feel too left out. I'm excited to take California Dreaming on this little trip to the other side of the United States for this. And if this is something you out there listening enjoy, maybe every other month or so, I'll ask you all to comment again on social media with your hometowns, cities, states, provinces, or countries, and we'll do this again. I've saved all the entries from the first drawing, so I will just add to them. I think that I'm going to very much enjoy taking a break from California every now and again, and I hope you guys do too. So how many of you out there listening enjoy being on the water in any capacity? Do you live near a river or a lake or the ocean? I'm not really one to be on or go in the water necessarily. I tend to prefer relaxing on the shore in a chair, and watching the ocean as the waves come in and out. I also like standing on the end of piers and staring out at the water and the horizon. The few times I've been out on a boat, like to Catalina, and I've gone whale watching a couple times, I've gotten seasick, so it's not at the top of my list of favorite things to do, 
But if the opportunity presents itself, I won't not go. I'm not afraid of water and I'm not afraid of the ocean, but there are people who are afraid of the ocean, a fear technically known as the lassophobia. And I spent some time practicing that so I would get it right. The lassophobia, the fear of the ocean. There are actually several phobias associated with bodies of water, but the lassophobia is a very specific fear. It refers to an intense fear of the ocean derived from the Greek word thalassa, meaning sea or ocean, and phobos, meaning dread. The lassophobia is usually associated with the fear of salty water, a fear of large waves, a fear of being away from land, or a fear of the vastness of the ocean. Some thalassophobes may not necessarily be afraid of the ocean itself, but rather the things that live in the ocean, as well as the anxieties that accompany fears due to things that are unknown or unexplored. Not to be confused with aquaphobia, which is a fear of all kinds of bodies of water or a fear of floods, and could possibly even be triggered by water in a bathtub, thalassophobia is very particular to the ocean. There are some tragedies that I find to be especially sad. The kind you hear about when someone loses their life doing something that they love doing or dreamed of doing their whole lives. Even just a couple weeks ago, I read an article about retired baseball pitcher Roy Holiday, who died when his plane crashed into the Gulf of Mexico. Only four years into his retirement, he was 40 years old. He was flying an Icon 35, a small, single-engine aircraft that went down in the Gulf off the coast of Florida. His body was found floating in shallow waters near some mangroves. He had just received his pilot's license a few years ago and tweeted some pictures of himself recently standing next to an Icon 45 as a part of the plane's marketing campaign, where he also was describing himself as having dreamed of flying since he was a child, as his father was a corporate pilot. But he was only able to become a pilot once he retired from baseball, as the terms of his contract prevented him from having a pilot's license while playing. His wife had also been against the idea of him purchasing a plane. In a YouTube video, she's seen saying that she fought hard against it before explaining why she eventually understood and approved of her husband's desire to have a plane. The video has been removed from YouTube. Roy had owned his plane for less than a month and was actually one of the very first to ever be able to fly it as there are only 20 in existence. It's worth mentioning that on May 8th of this year, two Icon employees, a company which is based in California by the way, the company's lead test pilot and the director of engineering were killed in a crash in Napa County, California. The NTSB, which is the National Transportation Safety Board, reported that the probable cause of the crash was likely pilot error. So anyway, as I was saying, when I hear stories like this, they really stick with me. When you finally get to that place in life, and you finally get to live your dreams, and it's the achieving of the dream that ends up taking you out. You hear about these stories, 
people dying doing what they love, but it's usually something like piloting a plane, JFK Jr. comes to mind, or skiing, or surfing, or mountain climbing, or car racing, or even like Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, dying doing what they love, right? I actually don't find any solace in that statement. I wouldn't be comforted if I had a loved one killed in an accident, that it's somehow better because they were doing what they loved. I think it would almost make it worse for me. But you know what could possibly be worse than that? Dying while attempting to confront and conquer a fear. How tragically ironic would that be? What immediately comes to mind is a story I was kind of sort of researching this past week because I was thinking of doing an episode about it. it was the 1981 drowning death of Natalie Wood. It was a well-known fact that Natalie had a lifelong fear of water. So much so that it had been reported that she wouldn't even go into her own swimming pool. However, according to her husband, not husband, then husband again, Robert Wagner, they had a history of unforgettable moments involving water. That he fell in love with her on board a boat that he owned. That many years after they had divorced, they re-fell in love again following a storm they had encountered while at sea en route from New York to London. They remarried aboard a friend's yacht off of Catalina Island in Southern California. Shortly after that, Natalie wrote Robert a note that said, Here's to smooth sailing for us from now on. They experienced such a renewed appreciation of how much they love the ocean that they purchased a 60-foot boat named The Splendor, named after one of Natalie's films. And having pushed her fears of water aside, and in an ironic tragedy, it would be off that boat, in the waters of the Catalina Channel, that her life would end by drowning. By the way, the Mysterious Circumstances podcast has an episode about the drowning of Natalie Wood, if you're interested in hearing more details about it. Justin did a pretty good job with it. And so, it was that desire to conquer one's fear of the ocean that fascinated me, that compelled me to want to bring you this particular story. The story of a young mother who had a lifelong, deep-seated fear of the ocean, who decided to set aside her fears for the first time so that she could spend a little bit more time with her husband. And it ended up being her first and final voyage with him. In today's episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Ghost Ship. At the age of 24, Kelly Van Lahr moved from Kalamazoo, Michigan to Miami, Florida in search of a better life. Described as a free spirit and adventurous, there needed to be something more out there for her than life in Kalamazoo had to offer. She was very much enchanted and taken in by the glamour of South Beach and moved there with the intentions of making the most of living there. Sometime after moving to Miami, 
She had found herself falling in love with a beautiful white home that she had spotted every time she went back and forth over the MacArthur Causeway. She was fascinated by the iconic Star Island mansion. When I had first heard Kelly's story a few years ago, it was the first time I had ever heard of Star Island. And in case some of you listening haven't heard of it either, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's a man-made island in Biscayne Bay, a neighborhood in the South Beach area of Miami. Built in 1922 by Dredging Sand, it is accessible by land and barrier islands via the MacArthur Causeway. There are about 98 people who live on Star Island. There have been some notable people who have owned homes there, including Emilio and Gloria Stefan, Sean Combs, Rosie O'Donnell, Don Johnson, and Shaquille O'Neal. So, as you can imagine, it's quite the exclusive neighborhood, and Kelly dreamed of someday living there. And that white mansion, though, it really stood out to her. She found it very alluring. She would call her family back in Kalamazoo and tell them that she found her dream world. She had found her dream life, and that someday she was going to live in that beautiful house on Star Island. But in the meantime, Kelly was making her way, waiting tables and bartending in South Beach. One day after finishing one of her shifts at work, she met a handsome young sea captain, Jake Branham. And in an incredible twist of fate, he happened to live in that very same white mansion that she had been admiring each day she crossed the causeway. Unlike many of the young women he had met in the past in South Beach, whom Jake had considered to be pretty vain and superficial, he found Kelly to be quite the opposite. She was real, and she was down to earth. The attraction was instantaneous. They quickly fell in love and embarked on beginning a life and family together. Kelly found herself living in a cottage on the Branham family compound on Star Island, the very place that she had once fantasized about. However, after four years of marriage and two children, she was finding that this dream of hers wasn't as fulfilling as she had hoped. Jake was living his dream captaining a boat, hiring it out for charters and for fishing. To Kelly, it seemed like all fun and games for Jake. Being gone all the time, getting to sail around off the coast of Florida, his long hours made for a very, very lonely time for Kelly. She had absolutely no ties to Star Island, no family, just Jake and their kids. I've been a stay-at-home parent, and for those of you out there listening can probably relate to what it's like to sometimes feel like you're losing your sense of self when your spouse is gone working all the time and you're at home with your young children 24-7. It can get to you, and it was getting to Kelly for sure. As nice as it would seem to be able to raise your children in a place like Star Island, I can imagine it would be an incredibly isolating and lonely place to be. 
What's even worse is Kelly felt as though she was never really welcome on the Barnum family estate on Star Island, and that it was especially hard because Jake was away all the time sailing his fishing boat. She would tell family and friends that she was never invited to the family gatherings, and it was dreadfully lonely because Jake was gone all the time. On Friday, September 21st, 2007, Jake had arrived home early to find his wife and children playing outside their Star Island cottage. Kelly was excited to have Jake home early and was looking forward to spending some time together relaxing and enjoying their children. He had spent the last year working hard trying to promote his new charter business, booking trips aboard his boat, which he named the Joe Cool. He was a phenomenal fisherman. He loved fishing and he loved the ocean. Friends would say that he had salt in his blood, as there was nothing else in life that he wanted to do. It was his dream to spend his days fishing, sailing people around, and coming home to his beautiful family. Jake had parted ways that day, a little early with his first mate and best friend, Samuel Carey, and headed home. They had spent most of the day getting their 47-foot fishing boat in the Miami Marina, ready for a Saturday morning job. Right after Jake had left, two men, a 19-year-old named Guillermo Zarabozo and a 36-year-old named Kirby Archer, came strolling up the dock looking for a captain who would be willing to take them on an unusual trip. They weren't having very much luck finding a captain that was willing to work with them, but then they spotted Sam and the Joe Cool. They stopped and talked to him about chartering the boat for the next day. They explained that they needed a one-way ride from Miami Beach to Bimini Island in the Bahamas, and they asked Sam if he would be interested in doing something like that. Sam called the company's co-owner, Jake's uncle, to secure the deal. Archer tells him that he and Zarabozo are two contractors, and they want to meet up with their girlfriends on the island of Bimini which is approximately 39 miles away. He goes on to explain that their girlfriends had mistakenly packed their passports and taken them with them. And without their passports, they needed to get around Bohemian customs. This wasn't exactly legal, which is why Zarabozo and Archer were having difficulty finding a captain willing to take them. But it's not something that's unheard of in this area of Miami. So when the two men offered to pay $4,000 in cash for this charter, it was an offer he couldn't refuse. They were just getting started in this business, and this would give them their first charter to Bimini. And $4,000 was excellent money to make that short trip to Bimini and back. They shake hands on the deal for the trip to be made the very next day. Back on Star Island, Kelly is happy to have Jake home for the evening and is looking forward to a quiet, relaxing night when the phone rings. It's Sam telling Jake about the charter to Bimini. Kelly immediately becomes upset that it's going to be another long weekend alone with the children because they want to turn this trip to Bimini into a fishing expedition as well for themselves. 
She also had this perception of this job being kind of like a fun time, party time kind of a thing. Sailing around the ocean, the beaches, and the Bahamas. She started to become resentful. And she started to become a little bit jealous that maybe he could possibly be having too much fun. Maybe stray away from their marriage, doing this job that he was doing. He saw it as business, but she saw it as partying. So when that phone call came in for him to take that trip to the Bahamas, she felt like she needed to do something. She wasn't really ready for him to go to the Bahamas without her, so she decided she wanted to go with him. However, this decision was not going to be an easy one for Kelly. She had very strong convictions about the ocean. Kelly had this lifelong fear of being stranded in the seemingly endlessness of the ocean. She was absolutely terrified of open water. Despite the fact that she was a relatively good swimmer, she had that phobia of drowning in the abyss of the ocean. She was not comfortable in boats that traveled far out into the ocean, and for the four years of their marriage, she had hardly set foot on his boat. So, in an effort to bond with her husband, she decided to set aside her worst fears and go with him on this trip to Bimini Island. After talking to Jake, Sam confirms the deal with Archer and Zarabozo, and both parties are equally excited for the business transaction. However, the story that they've told Sam, the story about meeting their girlfriends in Bimini and not having their passports, this whole story was a lie. Guillermo Zarabosa was 19 years old at the time that this took place. He was born in Cuba. His family wanted very much to immigrate to the United States, which they did, and they were able to make their way to Hialeah, Florida, a suburb of Miami. Many newly arrived Cuban immigrants end up in Hialeah, as the city has the highest percentage of Cuban and Cuban-American residents in the United States. So Zarabosa fit in easily in the community when he emigrated there. He didn't exactly excel as a student, but he did know very early on that he wanted to pursue a career in the military. And while he was in high school, he joined the ROTC, which stands for Reserve Officers Training Corps. Very shortly after graduating from high school, he got a job as a private security guard. He did have a fascination with guns and weapons. He was deeply interested in martial arts, and he loved the idea of being in the military or being a police officer. He was genuinely trying to figure out a future plan for himself. However, in addition to these interests, Sarabozo also had a passion for fast cars. He spent a lot of his free time hanging out with some friends who ran somewhat of a clandestine chop shop where stolen cars are refurbished and resold. For extra money, Zaraboso would often look for cars that would be easy to steal and tip off his friends at the chop shop about his finds. It was kind of a contradiction in Zaraboso's life. His view of right and wrong seemed to be somewhat fluid. 
Despite the fact that he was preparing for a career in either the military or in law enforcement, he seemed to take no issue with helping to call in tips for his friends at the chop shop. He was willing to go in either direction. All that seemed to matter to him was that he was able to benefit and continue living the life that he wanted for himself. So one day, a somewhat mysterious yet charismatic man drives into the chop shop. He is someone that is kind of well-known in the Hialeah community, known to some as El Gringo. He drives a nice car, he carries a lot of cash with him, and he immediately catches Zarabosa's attention. His name is Kirby Archer. He's 36 years old, and 19-year-old Zarabozo is impressed by the man's presence. Archer had recently returned to the Hialeah area to reunite with some of the friends that he had made in Guantanamo Bay. In the 90s, Archer was a military police officer, and he was stationed at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, while at the time, it was assisting thousands of Cuban immigrants who were seeking entry into the United States. As a side note, I had also read online that Zarabozo knew Archer from Guantanamo Bay, that he was eight years old or so, living in the camp, and was one of the kids that befriended Archer while there. Whichever account is most accurate, I'm uncertain of. So anyway, Archer, a very charming and easy-to-like kind of guy, was fluent in Spanish and made many friends who were living in the camp. So, despite the fact that he was no longer in the military, he was indeed recognized as an important person to the people who lived in the Hialeah area. But it was kind of a mystery as to what Archer actually did or why he was even there. He was drawn to the chop shop gang and he liked hanging out there. Archer had similar interests as those guys and he came off as a really important person, but nobody really knew why. He was always really well-dressed he never took off his sunglasses even when he was indoors. He always carried a briefcase, and he often stepped outside to take seemingly important calls. So there's a pro tip for everyone. If you want to look important, always wear your sunglasses, always carry a briefcase, and never tell anybody what you do for a living. You'll pretty much impress everyone, apparently. So this was the image Archer had cultivated for himself amongst these people in this community. He also makes it known to the owner of the chop shop that he's interested in purchasing a gun. So the first person that comes to his mind is Zarabozo, a guy who always seemed to be in possession of guns. He's always talking about guns, and he was known to be a huge gun enthusiast. So the chop shop owner arranges for Zarabozo and Archer to get together so Archer can possibly purchase a gun from him, or at least see if Zarabosa can find him a connection. This meeting between Archer and Zarabozo would eventually go on to have an incredibly far-reaching and tragic impact for so many people. Because when Zarabozo is able to come through for Archer and help him acquire a gun, a friendship a very trusting friendship is born. Archer very quickly befriended Zarabozo. Having an understanding quite early on 
that he was someone who could be very easily played, very easily manipulated. And Archer needed someone just like him. Before I go on about what Archer and Zerubos are getting themselves into, I think it's important for you to know a little bit more about this Kirby Archer character. As I said earlier, he had been a military police officer at Guantanamo Bay in the 1990s. There had been some rumors or speculation that Archer was homosexual, but that wasn't something that the military personnel were being open about at that period of time. He had expressed a great interest in trying to get a job with the CIA and was really enthusiastic about it around 2000, but suddenly and inexplicably changed his mind. Some have speculated that it was because he didn't think he would be able to pass the extensive background check that he would have to go through in order to become an agent, and that his sexual orientation was something he was afraid would be discovered or would disqualify him. Around 2002, he moved from being stationed in Germany to Oklahoma, and he had begun divorce proceedings for the third time, supposedly because he was going to be living his life as a homosexual. I read a couple of different renditions on how his military career ended. I'm not certain which is true, so I'll explain both. The first one was that he was still an active duty military police officer at the time he began divorce proceedings. However, it wasn't too much longer after that he decided not to re-enlist in the military. He had earned the rank of staff sergeant and had served more than 10 years, and it had been speculated that he was unable to keep his sexual orientation under wraps and received an administrative discharge. The second story is that he did re-enlist, but went AWOL not too long after. He came to Gainesboro, Arkansas, and worked at his parents' gas station. And by the mid-2000s, he was bouncing from job to job, unable to hold down anything steady. After his move to Arkansas, he decided to get married to a woman he had dated in high school. He settled down and got a job at a local Walmart, and over the next couple years, was able to work his way up to assistant manager. It's been reported that Archer had taken a liking to several of the teenage stock persons and clerks who were willing to take advantage of Archer's willingness to provide them with alcohol and allow them to drink at his place. Needless to say, there came a point when Archer was suspected of unsavory behavior with these underage kids, and he soon learned that he was about to be indicted on charges of child molestation, possibly statutory rape, I read both in different articles, so I don't know. It could have been both. It could have been one or the other. I'm not really sure. What I am sure of is that Archer had decided that he was not going to stick around and have those charges be brought down on him. So he hatched a plan to get out of Arkansas, but he was not going to go empty-handed. In January of 2007, Archer put his plan to leave Arkansas in motion. While still working as the customer service manager at Walmart, he had purchased a microwave using his employee discount 
He took the microwave to the back area of the store and left it where there were no cameras trained on that specific area, and he went to make the final register close-downs for the night, collecting over $92,000 in cash. He sent home the girl, who was strategically chosen by him because she was brand new, was supposed to accompany him on the rounds to shut down the register. She was supposed to stay with the customer service manager until all the money is counted and put into the safe as a security measure. So with her gone, he placed the money in the microwave and walked out the door with it when his shift was over. At some point, he had apparently been pulled over by the police up the road, but no one had been alerted yet as to the robbery. I don't really know what he was pulled over for, but it surmised that it kind of spooked him, so he decided to take a taxi all the way from Arkansas to Miami, leaving his wife and his kids behind, only taking his microwave and $92,000. Archer knew that that money he stole from Walmart wasn't going to last very long, so he decided that he needed to get out of the country. He figured that if he could make his way to Cuba, that if he were found, he wouldn't be extradited back to the United States. And in Cuba, with the amounts of money that he had, that would last him many more years than it would in the United States. Also in Cuba, he would be able to fit in. He spoke the language, and he had made a lot of friends there during his time in the military. He figured he could live happily ever after, what could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot actually. He needed to figure out a way to get to Cuba without going through customs or having to show his passport. So he hatched a plan. He was going to charter a boat. He would come up with a story about his girlfriend leaving for the Bahamas with his passport and that he needed a one-way ride to the islands to meet her there. For the crew of the Joe Cool, the deep-sea fishing boat that Archer was able to hire, this would be an easy-peasy short trip for a good amount of cash. $4,000 to be exact. Sounds almost too good to be true. That's because it was. As it would turn out, it was Archer's real plan to hijack that boat, hold the crew at gunpoint, and force them to take him near the coast of Cuba. Once they arrived there, he would disembark in the lifeboat and paddle the rest of the way. There, he would just pass the time, perhaps until the statute of limitations ran out on the laundry list of charges he was facing, kidnapping, grand theft, sexual contact with minors, and flight to avoid prosecution. Or perhaps he would just stay there forever. Okay, I'm just going to say it, but man, this guy thinks he's so smart. But wow, this guy is ever so stupid. Whatever made him think he was going to be able to pull off this plan is just absurd. And what was it that he thought was going to make this whole plan of his go even more smooth? Was the fact that Zaraboza was on board to help him. This kid, who was a security guard, he had guns and 
He was enamored with Archer. He completely idolized the guy. This guy who was just full of so many lies and tall tales. Zerobozo fell for them all. Archer was this ex-military, ex-cop. He had lots of money and drove a nice car. He was everything that Zerobozo dreamed of becoming. So on Friday, September 21st, 2007, the day before their charter to the Bahamas, Archer and Zarabozo checked into a hotel close to the marina. For several weeks, Archer had been grooming Zarabozo for this plan that he had cooked up for the next day. Archer had given Zarabozo some very specific instructions, which he was to follow very carefully. Archer told him that they needed to prepare for a long journey and he'd made it very clear that he has to cut ties with his friends and family. He could not tell anyone where they were going, what they were doing, or when they were leaving. He instructed Zerobozo to be as vague as possible in discussing his whereabouts. Of course, Zerobozo was intrigued very intrigued. You're probably wondering what exactly it was that was so impressive about Archer. The guy seemed to be about something important, but what exactly was it? Well, in Zero Bozo, Archer has found the perfectly impressionable, perfectly gullible, perfectly naive subordinate in this plan of his. But what was it that Archer was telling him. What exactly was it about Archer that was such a huge draw for Zarabozo? Well, after the two had met about six months earlier at that chop shop, as I had stated earlier that they had become really fast friends, they started hanging out afterwards. As Archer was likely trying to get a feel for Zarabozo, to see how much he could trust him. As he was planning on using him for this plan to flee from the country all along. After a few weeks of hanging out together, Archer had finally decided that he was able to trust Zarabozo enough to let him in on a big secret. He told Zarabozo that he was in the CIA and Zarabozo believed him. Now, Have you guys heard this lie being told before? I have, and I think you guys have too. Remember the story of Janelle Potter, that woman from Tennessee who catfished her parents via email into thinking that she was actually a CIA agent named Chris, and he was in charge of surveilling all of Janelle's enemies who had been supposedly making threats against her? And her parents fell for it and ended up making a plan to kill the two people that the CIA agent had been telling them that were planning on killing Janelle. If you haven't heard that story, it's a pretty good one and it's been covered by a couple of podcasts. I think I first heard it on maybe Sword and Scale, on True Murder with Dan Zupanski, and I think True Crime Breweries also covered it too. I find it so absolutely fascinating that people are actually so quick to believe that when someone claims to be a CIA agent, 
I guess maybe the average person wouldn't exactly know what a CIA agent is supposed to be doing or where they're supposed to be working. I suppose it's somewhat covert and secretive, or it's supposed to be. But some people so easily fall for this, I'm in the CIA ruse. I'm telling you, I wouldn't buy it at all. CIA agents don't seem to be the types of people who go around telling you that they are CIA agents. I mean, right? So for future reference, if someone tells you they're in the CIA, it's probably not true. So back to Archer. He went on to tell Zarabozo that he worked for the government and that he was periodically assigned to these special jobs through the agency. It's why he always has a lot of money and why he has to be dressed nicely and why he always has to be coming and going. He couldn't just be in one place because it's too dangerous. Zarabozo's impressed and he's excited about being in the company of a real spy. So Archer works this story up to a point where he eventually offers Zarabozo the opportunity of a lifetime. An offer that Zarabozo can hardly believe. Archer tells him that he can get him a job with the CIA too. Knowing what you know about Zarabozo, you can imagine what he's thinking. That man, this is even better than the police department. This is way better than the military. He's thinking that he can actually join the CIA with this guy. So from that point on, Zarabozo was all in on anything Archer wanted him to do. He was enthusiastic and he was so excited at every turn. He was like, I'm with you. I want to do this. I'm your man. It was this amazing life of mystery and adventure. Everything a young Zarabozo had ever dreamed of and more. This relationship between the two of them could not have been more perfect for Archer. He had met the textbook naive kid to cultivate and manipulate. Zarabozo believed every single word Kirby Archer told him. Archer had to come up with some kind of elaborate story in order to have Zarabozo convinced that he was in on something big. So throughout the summer of 2007, Archer had been telling Zarabozo that they have been assigned to a mission. He also told him that this mission was very dangerous and that they needed to get weapons. So they had begun preparing for months to carry out this mission that Archer referred to as the Cuba idea. Archer had told him that this so-called idea was to go to Cuba on this international espionage adventure, but the two of them needed to sneak into Cuba unnoticed that it was of utmost importance that they not be detected. And in order to do so, they would need a boat in order to circumvent Cuban customs. They talked about the possibility of stealing a boat, but that really wasn't going to work because neither one of them knew how to drive a boat or navigate the ocean. So eventually, 
Archer came up with what he referred to as Plan B. And Plan B was that they had to charter a boat, overtake the crew, make them take them where they wanted to go, which was Cuba. And then he tells Zarabozo that after they hijack the boat, they will sail as close to Cuba as possible. They will leave the captain and his crew on a nearby island and make the rest of the way to shore on their own. Archer also explains to Zarabozo that it's possible that some lives may need to be sacrificed for the sake of this important mission, and that was all collateral damage, and that was part of the job that they were undertaking. So in the days leading up to the charter, the two of them spent some time looking for an unwitting charter boat company, as well as procuring the supplies they needed to carry out this mission. Supplies, weapons, and ammunition. When all was said and done, the two men had carefully packed and put together six black duffel bags for the trip. Not for the tropical getaway that they've told the charter boat crew that they were going on, but rather, inside those duffel bags was an arsenal. Pistols, combat knives, blow darts, handcuffs, and a bullwhip. Archer had also strictly instructed Zarabozo to not tell anyone about this mission that they have been planning for months. And do you guys out there listening honestly think that this 19-year-old kid is going to be able to keep this cool mission he's on under wraps? If you guessed no way, you'd be right. He could not help himself but gloat about everything he's been doing, as he could hardly believe how important he's suddenly become since meeting Archer. When he tells his friends about what he's been up to, he even kind of exaggerates. He's kind of building himself up amongst his friends, kind of showing off like, look at me, I'm making this happen. I'm going to be in the CIA. I'm going to work for the government. And not only was he blabbing about all of this, he was doing it over instant messaging and chats on the computer that he was going to be somewhere that he wasn't going to be able to talk to his friends and that he was going to be 90 miles away from Florida. There had even been a chat log where Zarabosa had talked about getting over an ex-girlfriend, stating that he was going to have plenty of time to get over her while he's in Cuba. So there was little doubt that Zarabozo was most certainly being naive about these things that Archer was telling him, and that he truly believed that Archer was in the CIA, and that he was going to be an agent also. So sadly naive. In the meantime, Jake and Kelly, along with his crew, which consisted of his half-brother Scott Gamble and best friend Sam Carey, were getting ready to spend the weekend fishing after they finished their charter to Bimini. At the last minute, Kelly was able to make arrangements for Jeff's grandfather, the children's great-grandfather, and his friend Maria to take care of her two-year-old and her newborn so that she could go out on this charter with her husband. When she arrived at the marina, Sam and Scott were pretty surprised that she actually showed up. It was no secret that she had a tremendous fear of being so far out in the ocean that she could no longer see land. But 
The beauty of being off the coast of Florida and the strong desire to spend some time with her husband was enough for her to set aside those fears and go along for this trip. So on Saturday, September 22nd, 2007, this was supposed to be a big day of changes and new beginnings for both Kelly and Zarabozo. Kelly was there to face and conquer her fears of being on open water and in a big effort to bond with Jake, her husband who loves being on the ocean. She chose this day, this trip, this one-way charter to Bimini, where they've been told that they're taking their two passengers. This plan was to spend the rest of the day and the next fishing in the waters between Florida and the Bahamas. I can imagine how exciting this must have been for Kelly to be able to put aside all of her fears just to be with Jake. And for Zarabozo, this was going to be the start of his life as an agent with the CIA. It was going to be the beginning of him making his dreams come true. Shortly after Kelly arrived, Archer and Zarabozo arrived as well, strolling down the dock towards the Joe Cool. They had their six black duffel bags in tow, and as they got closer, they were kind of surprised to see four people on board the boat. They thought there were only going to be two, the captain and his first mate. For them, this plan to hijack the boat at sea suddenly became a little bit more complicated, as overtaking four people wasn't going to be as easy as overtaking two. But it was too late to back out, as their plan had already been set in motion. Archer handed over the $4,000 to Jake's Uncle Jeff, the co-owner of the boat and charter business, and he walked off with the money. Unfortunately, he didn't ask Archer or Zarabozo for any identification, so they had no names. They had no idea who these two men were getting onto the boat with Jake, Kelly, Sam, and Scott. In them... Archer had been able to find more people who were naive or didn't know or understand the red flags to look for when someone wants to charter a boat. Most of the boat captains, if they were to be offered $4,000 in cash for a one-way trip to a foreign country with no visas or passports or IDs, the first call they would make would be to the authorities. Even though Jake and his uncle had taken the men's story at face value. Once they arrived at the boat, Jake suddenly became a little bit skeptical. He did have that gut feeling that something wasn't right. Just as the boat was about to pull out of the marina, Jake grabbed his cell phone and called Maria, his grandfather's friend who was helping take care of his babies. He first asked about the kids and how they were doing, he asked her what kinds of fish she wanted him to bring back. 
She may have had the feeling something was going on with Jake, so she asked him, as she didn't know exactly what they were doing. She wanted him to tell her about the trip, and when he told her the details of it, she too immediately felt like something wasn't right either. She implored him to dig a little bit more, find out some more information about these men and this trip before they go. She told him not to leave until he knows more, but he told her that he can't stop the trip, that everyone was on board, his uncle Jeff had already taken the money, and that he had to make the trip. This phone call would haunt Maria and Jeff's grandfather for years. They pulled out of the marina, and according to witnesses who saw the boat depart, everyone seemed to be in good spirits. Everyone was in a great mood. It could not have been a more perfect Florida day. The weather was beautiful, and the crew of the Joe Cool were so much looking forward to a relaxing fishing trip after they dropped off their passengers. The four crew and the two passengers settled in for the two-hour sail to Bimini. And this, a most calm and sunny September afternoon, right at the beginning of the autumn season. We can only imagine Kelly taking all of this in, the beauty of the ocean, looking past her fears for once, and enjoying these moments with her husband, and at the very same time, Zarabozo, taking it all in himself, sailing off into what he thought was going to be a new beginning for him as a CIA agent. I have this overwhelming sense of sadness as we make our way through this. This boat sailing away from the Florida coast it fills me with so much sadness and dread knowing what's coming. Archer had made his way below deck as he was feeling seasick. In this, such a pivotal moment for him in his life, the stakes were so high in his mind and the fate of his future and his freedom were riding on this plan going smoothly. He was down there gathering himself, trying to pull it together so he could make this happen. Land was coming in sight very soon, and everybody was getting excited. The mood was jovial, and everyone was happy to have this charter successfully completed. They were looking forward to that return trip and doing some fishing, they had absolutely no idea what Archer and his sidekick, Zarabozo, had in store for them. The crew began to prepare to enter in a foreign country. They slowed the boat down and took out the quarantine flag, which indicates that the boat is free of contagious diseases. It was at that point Archer decided that the time had come to take this boat over. He called up to Zarabozo to come down below to talk privately. Sam was driving the boat. Kelly and Jake and Scott were up on the flybridge 
taking in the view of the Bahamas. Archer told Zarabozo it was time to overpower the crew and commandeer this boat. Archer then grabbed his gun and headed towards the flybridge. As soon as he was about to reach the top, Scott unexpectedly descended down below. So now it was going to be up to Zarabozo, the rookie in all of this, to now have to deal with two men instead of just one. It suddenly dawns on him that the possibility of a nonviolent takeover, the one that Archer had told him was their initial plan in the beginning, that possibility was dwindling. According to Archer, he would claim that he had planned to only confront Jake, overpower him, and take control of the Jill Cool. But he claimed that he suddenly heard some gunshots come from down below, that it had to be Zarabozo, that he must have started firing at Sam and or Scott. Jake and Kelly turn around and peer over the railing to find Scott lying wounded and bleeding on the deck. Archer decided that the only thing he could do next was to kill Jake. He raised his gun and fired one shot at him. His body fell over the rail and onto the deck below. Kelly, frozen in place, without a moment's chance to react to the horror that she was witnessing, was shot one time in the head. She too fell over the railing onto the deck next to her husband. Suddenly, Archer heard more gunshots coming from the cabin below as Zarabozo, according to him, has shot Sam too. And with that, all four members of the crew of the Joe Cool were dead. Zarabozo suddenly found himself having difficulty dealing with the reality of what he's just done as he suddenly becomes sick and is vomiting up the side of the boat. But Believing that he's on this mission to infiltrate Cuba as a spy for the CIA, he pulls himself together and continues to follow Archer's commands. And after all this, I suppose Archer seemingly forgot that he doesn't know how to drive a boat. So he's at the controls, struggling how to figure out how to drive it the rest of the way to Cuba, as the only people who knew how to control this boat, were all dead. Later, Zarabosa would state that Archer ordered him to clean up the boat, wash away the blood, and he also tasked him with disposing of Jake, Kelly, Sam, and Scott. So, one by one, they were all tossed overboard to a watery grave. Their bodies were never recovered. Jake was 27 years old. Kelly was 30. Scott was 35. And Sam was 27. And circling back to what I was talking about at the beginning of today's episode, dying, doing what you love, 
I think of that when I was watching videos about this story. The family talking about how much Jake, Sam, and Scott loved the ocean. That this was their life. This was everything to them. And that was where they met their end. And Kelly, poor Kelly, I think about her kissing her babies goodbye that day to go and tackle her biggest fear in the world just to be with her husband. Putting all of her convictions aside for the sake of her marriage and this happens. Every time I think about it, I get these chills and this rush of sadness like shoots through my body so much despair for these people. It's very difficult to imagine what their last moments were like. Anyway, sorry I'm getting sidetracked again. You're probably used to it by now. But these are the things about these stories that really stick with me. So anyway... Eventually, Archer figured out the controls and changed the course of the boat to head south, going full speed towards Cuba, hoping that in just a few hours he would be a free man. However, just as dawn was breaking, Archer ran into yet another snag in his plans. The Joe Cool ran out of gas. What do you know? Come to find... The boat had two fuel tanks, but for this particular trip, they only needed one to make the short trip to Bimini, so they left the second tank empty. They would have needed two in order to make it all the way to Cuba and back. I suppose it's a little something to be grateful for in this tragic story, that Archer would never be able to make his way as a fugitive to Cuba. So by Sunday morning, the Joe Cool was adrift approximately 30 miles from Cuba. Archer decided it was time to ditch the boat and deploy the life raft. He ordered Zaraboza to pack up their stuff and get the lifeboat loaded up and ready to go. So while these two were floating around on the life raft, they concocted this story just in case they were found before they were able to reach Cuba. Archer tells Zaraboza to tell authorities that they are the only survivors of an attack by Cuban pirates because nobody is supposed to know about their CIA mission to Cuba. This guy Archer is so stupid if he thinks that the Coast Guard is really going to believe his stupid pirate story. But anyway, back in Miami, Jake's Uncle Jeff was expecting the Joe Cool back by noon on Sunday. They were somewhat concerned because nobody had heard from them since Saturday morning when Jake last called to check in on the kids. But because Jake, Scott, and Sam were so experienced on the water, they weren't afraid that something had gone wrong right away. However, by 4 p.m., Uncle Jeff contacted the Coast Guard in order to report the Joe Cool as missing. Immediately, an air and water search was launched between Miami and Bimini. Three hours later, a Coast Guard cutter that was patrolling off the coast of Cuba saw a vessel on their radar. 
When they got closer to it, they realized that it matched the description of the 47-foot fishing vessel that had been reported missing out of Miami. They attempted to make contact with this ghost ship, but they got no answer, so they decided to investigate further. They boarded the ship and ascertained that nobody was on board. They noticed the blood, and they noticed the boat is in disarray, so they took a look at the boat's GPS to see where it had come from. What they found was that the boat had taken somewhat of a zigzag route, about 140 miles long, coming from the north. They soon realized that this was indeed the vessel reported missing from Miami. The Coast Guard immediately launched a grid search, searching for survivors. And Monday morning, the Coast Guard rescue mission amazingly found some. From a helicopter, they spotted a tiny little orange speck in the ocean. This was a life raft from the Joe Cool. Once the helicopter got closer to the raft, the force of the rudder pulled back the cover of the raft and they could see that there were two people there. As you can imagine, the Coast Guard is absolutely elated that they've found survivors and have made this incredible rescue. I can imagine that it must be a really exciting thing that might not often end up like this for the Coast Guard. But oddly, the survivors don't really seem to be all that excited that they've been saved. As a matter of fact, there is a complete lack of enthusiasm on the part of Archer and Zarabozo. And as you can imagine, this strikes the Coast Guard officials as bizarre right off the bat. There was no gratitude. There was no thank God we were found. Just nothing. I mean... Not that I've ever been in any kind of predicament such as this, being lost for a day or two, adrift on a life raft in the middle of the ocean, but I'm fairly certain that if a helicopter spotted me and saved my life, I'd be fairly ecstatic. But that's just me. So I believe that the lack of enthusiasm on the part of Archer and Zarabozo came across as really weird to the Coast Guard. Aside from that, the Coast Guard officials started asking about the four other people that were supposed to be on the Joe Cool. Archer explains to them that he and Zarabozo are the only survivors of a deadly attack by Cuban pirates. So the Coast Guard immediately gets ready to continue the search for the four missing people from the Joe Cool. They are still hoping they can still find them and possibly rescue them, as time is of the essence. There was speculation that they could be on an island nearby somewhere. At least that's what everyone was hoping for, and that somehow they would find these four people somewhere. The FBI is immediately flown out to the Coast Guard cutter to interview these two survivors, but they were going to be interviewed separately. Both Archer and Zarabozo recounted the story they had devised, that the crew were all killed by Cuban pirates. However, their accounts of what actually happened on the Joe Cool were inconsistent with one another. So for investigators, red flags started going up all over the place, and the suspicion was quickly raised. 
not only did their stories not match up, it was pretty outlandish tale. The story of pirates being in the Atlantic Ocean between Miami and Bimini, like real-life pirates of the Caribbean, it's just not really a thing. Federal agents would soon discover who Kirby Archer actually was, that he was a fugitive from Arkansas wanted for robbery. So with that, these two survivors suddenly became two suspects. It also began to dawn on Zarabozo that Archer really isn't what he said he was. He's not in the CIA. He's not working for the government. He has not been assigned to some international espionage mission in Cuba. And Zarabozo was not going to become a CIA agent himself. And it's probably also quickly sinking in that none of his dreams for himself are ever going to come true now. Three days after they had set sail with Jake, Kelly, Scott, and Sam, Archer, Zarabozo, and the Jill Cool were brought back to the marina. And these two men would soon be made to answer to the charges of murder. To avoid the possibility of the death penalty, the following year, Kirby Archer decided to turn on his co-conspirator, agreed to testify against him, and pleaded guilty to conspiracy and four counts of first-degree murder. Before a packed federal courtroom in Miami, Archer took responsibility for shooting Jake and Kelly, but blamed the killing of Sam and Scott on Zarabozo during the botched attempt to hijack the boat in order to head to Cuba. He gave the very first detailed account of the events that led up to their deaths. In his signed statement, he said that as the boat got close to Bimini, he retrieved his loaded pistol and climbed the ladder to the flybridge. He was about to take position and gain control over Jake and Kelly when he heard a shot ring out on the lower deck. He then fired at Jake and then his wife and watched their bodies tumble over the railing. He said it was Zarabozo who killed the other two crew members. And he also would say that it was actually all Zarabozo's idea to kill everyone and throw their bodies overboard. In exchange for his guilty plea and testimony against Zarabozo, Archer was sentenced to five life sentences without the possibility of parole. And the family was perfectly okay with the plea deal and the sentence. Zarabozo, however... He was going to take his case to trial. Prosecutors had already decided that they were not going to seek the death penalty in their case against Zarabozo, having taken into consideration that he was only 19 at the time the murders took place and that he had no prior criminal history. Zarabozo vehemently maintained that he was innocent and that it was Archer who killed all four of the crew members and that he was completely lied to and duped by Archer. He had no idea that any of this had been planned and that he continued to go along with Archer out of fear for his own life. In October of 2008, Zarabozo's first trial ended in a mistrial when jurors failed to agree on verdicts for the most serious of counts against him. However, they did agree on the underlying weapons charges that he was guilty of providing the gun used to kill Jake, 
Kelly, Scott, and Sam, but deadlocked on whether he actually took part in the kidnapping and killings. The judge decided to throw out the weapons verdicts and ordered a second trial, finding the jury was confused by faulty instructions on the law. During his trial, Zaraboza did testify in his own defense, which isn't a thing that happens very often. He claimed he was tricked into the whole thing, and that the reason he initially lied to authorities was because he was scared and confused. He testified that he didn't know that Kirby Archer had been planning on hijacking the boat and kill the crew. He said that he thought they were going to Bimini to work as bodyguards for high-ranking government officials, and that Archer claimed to have connections with the United States intelligence agencies, and that he was going to help him get a job with the CIA. He told the jury that he had dreamed of a career in the military or in law enforcement. He said that he was in the bathroom when he heard gunshots and the commotion on the boat. And when he came out, he said that he saw Archer holding the gun and everyone was shot dead. The gun, however, was owned by Zarobozo. He said that Archer ordered him at gunpoint to throw the crew members' bodies overboard and clean up the blood on the boat. Prosecutors asked him why he wasn't suspicious that Archer didn't have any ID or use credit cards, or when Archer had lied to the crew of the Joe Cool when he had told them they were going to Bimini to meet up with some girlfriends. He claimed that he just didn't think anything of it at the time, and that it never came to a point where he thought he needed to question what Archer was doing. He was kind of just going along, as he thought they were on a super-secret mission. The prosecutor also asked him why he didn't try to call for help or tell authorities the truth initially when they were first rescued from the life raft. He continued claiming that he was afraid of what Archer was going to do to him, so he went along with the story Archer concocted while they were afloat on the life raft after the Jill Cool had run out of gas. He testified that Archer had threatened to blame Zarabozo for the four killings since it was his gun that was used and because he had helped dispose of the bodies. He later changed his story and placed the responsibility of the killing squarely on Archer. The prosecutor pointed out some glaring discrepancies during his testimony in comparison to what he had told authorities earlier in the year. One being that in early statements that he had said that he heard three or four shots. Then at trial he testified that he couldn't remember how many he had heard. Another inconsistency prosecutors pointed out in early statements, he had said that he was ordered to go upstairs while Archer dragged one of the bodies up, while at trial, he said he helped carry the body. He testified that he'd been through so much that he can't remember everything perfectly, adding that he was really sorry for what happened to those people. Prosecutors claimed that Zarabozo had been part of this plot for months, and that it was his gun, the 9mm gun that was brought aboard, and that it was also him that brought extra ammunition and clips. The federal jury ended up convicting Zarabozo on all charges that were brought against him, 16 in total, including four counts of first-degree murder, conspiracy, hijacking, kidnapping, robbery, and use of a firearm. After the verdict was read, Jake's grandfather, Harry, the one who had been watching his and Kelly's babies the day they set out for that faithful voyage, said that he was glad justice was done, 
and that Zerobozo showed no compassion, as he didn't feel like he was responsible in any way for their deaths. He did also say that he felt a lot of compassion for Zerobozo's parents, as they too were losing a son. Zerobozo's mom, who sat through the entire trial, left the courtroom in tears. She declined to comment. I wanted to stop here for a minute and talk about Zerobozo's role in the killings of Jake, Kelly, Sam, and Scott. I don't know about you guys, but I kind of felt a little bit of sympathy for the guy. I do really believe that he was duped into thinking that he was going to participate in some high-level CIA work. I feel like Kirby Archer played him like a fiddle, and Zarabozo fell for all of his tall tales, hook, line, and sinker. By no means am I wanting to diminish Zarabozo's role in this whole story. I mean, we really don't know who pulled the trigger on who on that boat that day, but we do know what Archer's intentions were. It seems pretty obvious to me that he had no intentions of letting the crew he hired to charter him to Bimini live. But was Zarabozo aware of that? Is it possible that he thought this plan was a part of the way the CIA operated? The plan to leave them on an island and commandeer the boat was the intended plan. But things went wrong and he was following Archer the supposed CIA agent's orders? I think about Zarabozo's state of mind. Did he have these nefarious, murderous intentions? Archer? Yes. Zarabozo? I'm not so sure. But does it matter? He was there. He went along. He helped. He brought his gun. He brought the ammunition. He never wavered. He never turned back. He never tried to stop it. He lied to authorities. But I can't help feel as though if he had been told the truth from the moment they were plucked from that life raft, things may have gone differently for him. He might have had a second chance at life but that would not be the case. On May 6, 2009, Zarabozo was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences plus 85 years for taking part in the hijacking of the Joe Cool and the murders of Jake, Kelly, Sam, and Scott. The mandatory sentencing following his convictions was life in prison, but the judge and prosecutor agreed that a more severe, multiple life sentence was necessary and symbolic for the lives he took part in ending, despite Zarabozo's repeated claims that he hadn't killed anyone. At sentencing, Zarabozo told the judge that he had no intentions of hurting anybody, that when he got onto that boat, he didn't know what Archer was going to do. The judge wasn't having any of it, calling his statements and testimony largely a fabrication that was contradicted by evidence and the fact that he decided to bring a gun along with other weapons aboard the boat. Friends and family of both the victims and of Zarabozo 
packed the courtroom. Jake's grandfather read a lengthy impact statement in which he repeatedly called Zarabozo a monster who destroyed their families. Zarabozo's mother also spoke, repeating her son's claims of innocence, but at the same time expressing deep sympathy for the victims' families. I found an interesting side note related to Zarabozo's story in all of this. A man named Antoine Hall. Hall apparently once played a small role in this entire narrative. In 2007, Hall was serving a 30-month sentence for a weapons charge and was housed with Zarabozo during part of that time, and he told federal prosecutors that Zarabozo confessed to him, claiming that Archer was the one who shot and killed the crew members using Zarabozo's pistol. Zarabozo's defense attorney fought the government's plan to use Hall as a witness, calling him a jailhouse snitch, making up stories to get reduced sentences. He had previously testified in an unrelated attempted murder case and managed to get 10 months shaved off his sentence. But it seems Hall kept getting in trouble. He was charged with burglary and wound up getting another 18 months in prison for violating his probation. He was released in December of 2012, but was arrested again eight months later for another burglary in Hialeah, but prosecutors decided not to file charges in that case. His final break-in would end up costing him dearly. Fast forward to June of 2015, and this guy, once again, could not stay out of trouble. Hall, along with an accomplice, used a screwdriver to break into a house, thinking the residence was empty. They began ransacking the home, but the home wasn't empty. The homeowner heard the noises, grabbed his gun, confronted the two men, and shot them both. Hall was immediately killed, and his accomplice was wounded. In Florida, it seems, homeowners have a lot of leeway when it comes to the use of deadly force against intruders, even those that are unarmed who enter their homes unlawfully. So the homeowner wasn't going to be charged for Hall's death. But you know who will be? His accomplice. He would go on to face second-degree murder charges for participating in the burglary that led to Hall's death. Isn't that something? Florida, you never cease to amaze me. So back to my original Florida story. I looked for obituaries online for the four victims of this story, but there aren't any. However, each does have a profile on the charlieproject.org, listing them all as missing endangered. Jake Branham was born July 28, 1980. At the time of his disappearance, he was 27 years old. Kelly Branham, Jake's wife, was born July 11, 1977. At the time of her disappearance, she was 30 years old. Scott Gamble, Jake's half-brother, was born June 15, 1972. He was 35 years old at the time of his disappearance. And Samuel Carey, Jake's best friend, was born August 5, 1980, and he was 27 years old at the time of his disappearance. And what about Jake and Kelly's two young children? Taylor, age two, and Morgan, 
aged four months at the time their parents were lost at sea. I wasn't able to find much of an update beyond what was going on in the days following Jake and Kelly's disappearance. But what I did find is that one week after the ill-fated voyage, these two young children became the center of a custody battle that was likely going to go on for years. Relatives of Jake and Kelly both immediately filed emergency petitions saying they would be the best guardians for the couple's young children. The courts had appointed a guardian in the meantime to look after the children and their interests. The search efforts had been called off six days after the Joe Cool was reported a missing vessel. Among those vying for custody were their paternal great-grandparents, their maternal grandmother, and a great-uncle. The children had been staying with their great-grandfather, the one who had been watching them while Jake and Kelly went on that charter to Bimini. From what I could see, the battle for custody was going to be nothing less than contentious, as Jake's family is very, very wealthy, having owned that $10 million compound on Star Island. Those children are likely to be heirs to Jake's family fortune someday, and that seems like something that's going to make everyone want to be their guardians. As I said, I could not find any recent updates as to the custody situation for the children, who would now be 10 and 13 years old. It's worth mentioning that the custody may also be a reason why no obituaries could be found. They might not have been declared dead yet. The court filings list their parents as missing or whereabouts unknown. I don't know what that means in terms of custody, but I found that to be kind of an interesting thing in this case. What would a declaration of death mean for the children? I have no idea of the legalities of it all. And that brings this 20th episode of California Dreaming and my very first episode of the Vacation Series to a close. Having visited Arizona in last week's episode and now Florida in this, I am looking forward to getting back to California and finding some more fascinating tales to tell. But I'm also very, very much enjoying choosing stories from other places. So if you guys like it too, I was thinking of doing a drawing maybe once a month or so, like I did this time, posting on social media, asking for you guys to comment with your city, state, province, or country, and I'll pick one. This time we chose David from Florida. So David, if you're listening, thank you for taking part in the drawing. And if you would like a show sticker, email me at californiapod at yahoo.com and I'll get one out to you. Also, you guys, if you have a chance to go on iTunes or on Facebook and leave a review, that would also be much appreciated. And if you already have, thank you for taking the time to do that. It gives the show more visibility, something I could definitely use. I also want to thank you for your continued support on Patreon. I never thought I would see myself at 20 episodes in. The show is growing slowly but surely, and I am ever so grateful to be able to bring this to all of you. If you'd like to support me on Patreon, there are now tiers to choose from, and I'm working hard to try to get ahead with content so I can bring you some more exclusive content on there. I also wanted to say thank you to all of you who reached out to me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 
with the fabulous feedback about last week's episode on Janice Huber. It's amazing, despite being such a huge populous state, these tragic stories are so far-reaching and touch so many lives. I've heard from listeners who tell me they knew this person related to this case, or they went to school with that person, or I remember seeing those missing persons billboards when that happened. I've been enjoying revisiting these stories and remembering the lives of these victims, and I'm so glad that there are so many of you out there remembering along with me. Keep the feedback coming. I love hearing from all of you very much and appreciate you taking the time to post on social media and sharing how these stories resonated with you. California Dreaming has proudly found a home at the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I can't begin to tell you how much of an impact being a part of this family of amazing podcast hosts has been for me in the show. I've told you all about the shows that we've joined forces with, The Concession Stand, Super Nerds UK, Busted Wide Open, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, and Film Roast. I couldn't, in my wildest dreams, think of a more incredible group to be a part of, and they are truly like family. If any of their shows sound like something you might be interested in, you can find them all on our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com, and you can also find links to their Facebook pages at the top of my discussion page. Join their page, find out more about their shows, and get to know the hosts. They are truly fantastic people. Oh, and you guys, did you see that I finally got a new design up on the Orbital Jigsaw Merchandise Store at Public? If you haven't, you're missing out. It's my tribute to my fellow 80s kids. I know I drone on and on about the 80s sometimes in my episodes, and I can't help it. Going back in time and researching some of these cases really takes me back, so... You don't have to be a Gen Xer to get in on the 80s stuff. And I think I'm seeing new stickers in our futures very soon as well. So check out the merch store. I'll post the link in the show notes and on social media as always. The usual places. On Facebook, be sure to join and like those pages. Follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Before I finally let you go, I have a couple of podcast promos that I'm really excited to play for you this week. One is from the Wine and Crime podcast, and also kind of a new one I was just turned on to, Les Mordia. Here, take a listen. Hey, true crime fans. Have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, Crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. 
Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod. And check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Cheers! Hi, I'm Lucy Mortem. And my name is Ginny. And we invite you to join us every week on Les Mordia, where we discuss our favorite true crime topics. But not just true crime, any and all things dark and mysterious that pertain to the human psyche. Cults, conspiracy, weird pop culture. But hey, we're not professionals and we're often inappropriate. We really bank on you finding that charming, though. (laughs) So turn out the lights, lock the doors, and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thank you again for joining me for this 20th episode of California Dreaming. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>